This is the Build Wealth Canada Show, episode number 76. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Whether you've already done your taxes for the year or not, I wanted to dedicate this episode to the tax optimizations that you can do to save tax, not only this year, but for future years as well. And to help me with this, I've brought on accountant Neil Winokur on the show. Neil is a chartered professional accountant here in Canada. He's the author of the book, The Grumpy Accountant, and you might have also seen some of his writing over at the National Post, and he has been an accountant here in Canada for over 10 years. So I thought it would be great to pick his brain on what all us non-accountants can do to save money on taxes for this year and for the years to come. And in this episode, you'll also learn what we can all do to ensure that we aren't missing out on any credits and benefits that we are eligible for from the government of Canada. Changes happen every year to the different credits and benefits that the government offers. So how can we ensure that we don't miss out on any of the ones that apply to us and that we aren't leaving money on the table? So enjoy the episode. Thanks for tuning in. And now let's get into the interview. All right, Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. So to kick things off, let's start with the question on everyone's minds. How can we pay less taxes? And more specifically, what are the tools that we Canadians can use to pay less in tax? Okay. So the main thing is for people who are employees with a T4 slip, there's two aspects to your tax bill. One is your income, and then you have your deductions and credits. So if you're a T4 employee, You can't do so much about your income. Your income's on your T4, that's your income. But it's all those deductions and credits where you have to make sure you're not missing anything. And there are way too many deductions and credits. That's my beef with the tax system. It's too complicated. So you have to make sure every year, first of all, you know what deductions and credits are out there. And second of all, make sure you're claiming them properly, not missing anything. Um, so how does one do that? Well, there's if you're filing your tax return on your own and you're using a tax software, they should ask you like certain questions to prompt you to see if maybe you have some of these deductions or credits. Um, and then uh, another way would be to actually just look at the list. Um, so if you go on Google and you type in uh, CRA T1 guide, um, the, it'll just pop up and it's called 5000 dash dash G and it's a 35 page PDF guide. But in this guide, you'll see like the list of every single tax deduction and credit. It's also on your tax return. If you look at what's called the T1 general and it's nine, nine pages of your, uh, how to calculate federal tax. So you have all the deductions and credits there. You have to make sure you know what they are and that you're not missing any of them. Um, that, that would really be the first step to making sure that you're paying the lowest amount of tax possible, getting the maximum refund possible. That's great. I, I really appreciate that that tip. And I can see that maybe being a bit overwhelming because of the number of pages. But I suppose yeah. the, the process is, either if you're not using that kind of software, let's say, or even if you are, I guess you could always double, it's probably prudent to double check to just yeah. go through that list. And if one sounds like it might be relevant, you can, I'm sure, I guess, Google that specific one, right? And then sort of go down that rabbit hole of figuring out, okay, am I actually eligible for this one? And then maybe right. asking your accountant about it, um, or I guess getting customer support from that software if they never asked you any sort of questions 
in relation right. to that? Would that be sort of a good next step for people? Yeah. So if you're using a professional tax preparer, I mean, the whole reason why you would use a professional tax filer, tax accountant, tax preparer is because they should be doing this for you. They should be up to date because every year it changes, right? And that's also one of my criticisms of the system is it's constantly changing. So it's hard to keep up to date unless it's your like profession. Um, so if you're using a professional tax preparer, they should be asking you certain questions. Like this year, for example, there's a new tax credit called digital news media subscription tax credit, where if you pay online for a subscription to a Canadian newspaper or Canadian media, you might be eligible for tax credit. So if you're using an accountant, they should ask you that this year. That, that's just an example. If you're doing the tax return by yourself, there's a lot of great resources out there. One of my favorites is um, taxtips.ca. It's extremely thorough and detailed. And on the left-hand side, you click personal tax and 2021 and 2020 tax. And you'll see they, they, they kind of show all the tax changes from the year before, all the new credits and deductions. And if you read, you know, the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, the Financial National Post, Financial Post, all of the main newspapers in Canada, every year, starting in November, December, January, February, March, April, there's always articles about all the tax changes for the coming year. And you could stay up to date that way, just reading on your own, what are the new credits and deductions. Um, but it is, it is hard to keep up to date um, on your own if you're doing your own return. Uh, most of the main deductions and credits don't really change every year, but there's always new ones and there's always tinkering and little changes that could sometimes make a big difference, actually. Yeah, one thing that's always sort of been at the back of my mind that sort of made me uneasy is even if you're working with a good accountant, then, I mean, during tax season, so we're talking personal income taxes here, they are really, really busy, right? And so they're getting swamped, they're working crazy hours, and so yeah, they're up to date on everything, but do they really have the time to go through this sort of interview process with you where right. they say, Hey, are you in this situation? Are you in, the, you know, it, it's, to me, it sounds like that doesn't really happen uh, and correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. Right. And so I've always kind of been, okay, I, I, I trust you to do my taxes, but I get it. You're also kind of maybe over capacity right now. How can I make sure that you don't forget to ask me something so right. that I still get that deduction? Do you have any, I mean, am I just being worrying unnecessarily or do you think this no. is a valid concern? It's absolutely valid because um, whether you're filing your tax return on your own or you're using a professional tax preparer to help you, you have to know there are certain things that happen in life that will have a tax consequence either in your favor or not in your favor. So what we do in our in the accounting that I started last year called realtytax.ca, what we we actually have a Google form that we prepared, we send it out to every client and it's basically a questionnaire. Did did your marital status change? Did you have any new children or any new dependents? Um, did you move? Is your, did your address change? You have to get your correct address in your tax return, right? Did you sell your principal residence? Because now we have to report the sale of your principal residence on your tax return. Did you make any RSP contributions? Did you have medical expenses? Did you have donation receipts? Um, so one of the things we always do, and I know most accountants, I think, do this. I assume they do this, is the first thing we always do is we look at the prior year tax return. And then we look at the information that the client gave us this year. And if there's something that was there last year that's not there this year, we ask the question. So if somebody had medical expenses last year 
and they don't have it this year, we'll ask, hey, did you have any medical expenses? Because you had this last year, right? And anyone who's filing their own tax return should do the same thing. Whatever tax software you're using, you should have, there should be um, uh, like a, a certain page in that tax software called comparatives. And you can compare 2019 to 2020. And it's literally line by line comparative. And if you know this, oh, last year I cleaned this, I don't have it this year, maybe that should remind you that, oh, maybe you're missing that, right? Um, so that's a very good exercise to do. And then, like I said before, you have to brush up on what any new deductions or credits are this year. But people who are using an accountant, hopefully most accountants are doing that exercise, and I think they are, um, and they should be asking, there are certain basic questions they have to ask, change in address, change in marital status, um, did you sell your principal residence? Uh, did you purchase any foreign property outside of Canada that costs $100,000 or more in Canadian dollars? Because then there's another form called T1135, which has to be filed. So there's all sorts of little things that go into it um, that we have to be on top of. And yeah, it's not easy and it's not easy in tax season. So one thing I recommend people do if you're using an accountant and you want to talk about your whole personal tax financial situation contact your accountant outside of tax season, right? Maybe in not July or August, because I know many accountants like to take time off in July and August. So don't bother your accountant in the summer, although some might be okay with that. Um, but maybe in September, October, November, December, you can kind of do some tax planning, year-end planning. That's a good time to try to plan for the next year, September to December. And then that way, January, you know, February, March, April, when it's tax filing time, you're ready to go. And you're not scrambling at the lab. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. So instead of trying to do everything in one swoop when they're the busiest, you're saying instead, think of it as sort of two separate engagements, I guess. One is more sort of tax strategy that you have in the off season when they have time to do these questions for you and then look at everything and strategize. And then right. the when it's actually getting close to tax season, that's more of just like an operations administrative thing where, okay, we just got to make sure our I's are dotted, T's are crossed. We've submitted everything. But yes. we're at that point, we're really just already, the strategy has already been set. We've already been implementing it. Now it's just making sure the filing's correct. Is that Do you recommend looking at it that way? Yeah, exactly. And that's especially important for people who are self-employed or have a small business corporation, if they uh, own their own business. And also for, even if you're, someone's not self-employed or not a business owner, but um, they have a lot of investments, a lot of investment income, or they're high net worth families or wealthier or higher income. It's important to do this kind of planning every year uh, because you never know what you might be missing out on. The tax rules can change, which you might not be aware of. There's obscure changes all the time. So, but I think it's important that everyone, everyone, if they're using an accountant, they should have a conversation with their accountant at some point in the year outside of tax season. Um, even if the accountant charges more for that consultation, it could be worth it. And then people who are doing their tax returns on their own um, should also maybe once a year outside of tax season, I think we'll talk more about how to prepare for tax season for, but it's something, this is something that could be done outside of tax season as well. Even if you're doing your own tax return to read up about it, brush up on it. Right. Um, it's definitely because in, in the middle of April, when the deadline's approaching, you don't want to be scrambling and like overly stressed out by this kind of thing at that time. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that 
different life events can really change things significantly from a tax situation. And so obviously when something big like that happens, like you mentioned, sell, you know, selling a home or big investments or you know, things of that nature. Uh, but you also mentioned for high net worth individuals, there is a chance that there could be some good ta- tax optimization there too. Uh, what do you think is a good threshold to use if somebody wants to know, well, okay, I didn't really have anything change this year, but my investments have grown. My, you know, let's say their, their house has grown in value, like a lot of Canadians have experienced. You know, at right. what point do you think, okay, I'm now considered a high net worth individual by most, and therefore it may be now worthwhile for me to, sure, incur a little bit of extra expense on the accounting strategy side from my account, but it's probably going to be worth my while because I can I have now more things that could, you know, tweak and get some extra tax savings or credits there. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know if there's any specific number. And in terms of that, like now you meet the threshold, now you don't. The way I would look at it is if you're at a point where um, you're maximizing your registered accounts every year, meaning every year you're able to max out your TFSA, max out your RRSP, contribute to your RESPs for your kids. If you're already at that point, let's say, I would say at that point, um, it might be worth it to make sure that your investments are being, that they are structured properly. You have the right kind of investments in each of those registered accounts, right? And if you start to have investments in non, non-registered accounts, because you've maxed out your RSP, TFSA, RSP, then certainly it's worth it to talk to someone about structuring. It doesn't necessarily have to be an accountant. It might be, you know, there's those certified fee-only financial planners and financial advisors, people like that as well. Um, and even a family lawyer and, and making sure you have uh, a will, like estate planning, wills planning, it's not to everyone should have a will. If you don't have a will, you should have one. Um, that goes without saying. But I, so I, I don't think there's a specific threshold. I think if you're at a point where you have savings to invest and you're unsure of either how to invest it or where to invest it, TFSA, RRSP, RESP, there's the RDSP if you have the disability tax credit. There's all sorts of these things here. So and then there's also like if you're married or common law and you do you have a joint should you have a joint account not have a joint account there's all these kinds of questions that have to be answered so i think at any point really when you start to have savings i think it's worth it to sit down with a tax specialist and structure it create a plan and sit down with an estate lawyer and create a will right these are all things that have to be and there's also you know life insurance to be considered if you have a big mortgage and you have dependents that's part of this plan as well so there's a lot of planning that goes into it and you have to have these advisors in place i think but i don't think there's a specific threshold i think it's a good it's a good idea anytime at any at any level of uh wealth to be planning ahead and thinking about these issues And now a quick intermission to tell you about some of the free financial tools that I personally use, which I think you'll also find helpful here in Canada. And just for full disclosure, some of the companies may be past or current sponsors of the show. But regardless, I wanted to let you know about them as I actually do use them. I find them very helpful and they are what I recommend to family and friends, regardless of whether they are sponsoring the show or not. When it comes to checking your credit score, the free tool that I use is over at Build Wealth Canada. 
Dotca slash score. Checking your credit score at least once a year is pretty critical as it can be the key difference in you getting approved for a mortgage, a car loan, or a line of credit. And having a good credit score is key in having access to the lowest interest rates in Canada and the best terms on any loans that you take out. We also constantly hear on the news about identity theft, companies getting hacked, and credit card information getting stolen. And so I always check my credit score using this tool every three months to ensure that there isn't anything suspicious happening with my credit score due to identity theft and hacking. So that tool to get your credit report and check your credit score for free is available over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash score. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash score. If you're an ongoing listener of the show, you know that the free savings account that I've been using for years for my entire emergency fund and day-to-day expenses is over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ. Not only are they free, but the interest rate that they give you on your savings account is up to 30 times higher compared to the other banks in Canada. I've been with them for years, have been recommending them way before they ever became a sponsor on the show, and they also have free Interact e-transfers, really good rates on their free TFSA and RSP accounts, some of the highest I've actually seen when it comes to fixed income. There's no minimum balances. You can actually automate your contributions as well, and it's all insured by the government through CDIC insurance. So it's pretty much as safe as it gets in my book. So if you are going to sign up for free with them, please use the link buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash the letter E and the letter Q. It's a huge help. And using that specific link helps keep the show and almost everything on the Build Wealth Canada site free. And as a thank you, when you sign up with them for free using that link, if you send me any confirmation email that you get from them, I'll send you my full free guide on all the investments that I personally own and buy, along with an in-depth explanation on why I chose each one. There are thousands of investment options out there, some incredibly expensive with ridiculous hidden fees. So this guide will at least help you narrow things down. And these are all investments that have massively helped my wife and I retire in our 30s. And they are the investments that I continue to hold and live off today. So to get the free guide, just sign up for free over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ. And it has to be through that specific link. And then forward me any confirmation email that you get from EQ to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca. And I'll send you the full guide for free. So thank you so much for using that link to support the show and enjoy the free banking and the high interest rate on your savings account. That's a great point because, yeah, I mean, even if somebody is a more of a, let's say, lower income family, there's obviously certain credits and, and different tax things that they can take advantage of because they're in sort of that lower bracket, let's say. So there's that. Right. And then, yeah, I really like your point about not having some sort of arbitrary number um, because I can see, I'm right. thinking of a case of someone's, let's say, out of school. So yeah, their net worth might not be that high yet because they're fresh out of school, but maybe, you know, they just finished becoming a doctor or a lawyer or some you know high paying engineer, whatever the case may be. And mm-hmm. so yeah, their net worth isn't huge. Their investment, you know, their investable assets aren't that huge yet. But like you said, they're maxing out their TFSA every or every year. They're maxing right. out the RSP, RSP, everything's maxed out. And so okay, you want to make sure those are set up properly um, right. so that you're not look, you know, you don't just blindly throw money in there for 10 years and then right. realize you left all this money on the table because you don't want to take the few hours to strategize right. with an accountant, right? So that's a really, yeah. that's a great tip, I think. Thanks for saying that. It's, it's funny also you say about someone who was maybe a university student, um, not to shamelessly promote my book, The Grumpy Accountant, but one of the tips in my book is actually as soon as you turn 19 years old, 
you should start filing a tax return. A lot of people don't realize that because they think, well, I'm 19 years old. I don't have any income. Why would I file a tax return? But if you turn 19, you can get GST credits, um, which are tax-free, if, even if you, if you have zero income. So you should be fought. And also, depending on your province, most provinces have a sales tax credit as well. So that could be four, $500, even more that you'll get back just from filing a tax return. And students, if you're a college or university student, you could file your tax return by yourself online for free. These the, the the softwares like TurboTax, you file, I think for students, I'm pretty sure if you go online to their website, if you're a student, you they they let you file for free. They wanna they wanna bring you in as a customer, right? They hope that eventually when you start working, you'll be a paying customer. So you it doesn't even cost you anything to file your return and you get free money back from the government. And it's very important. And you'd be surprised a lot of people don't know this. Any post-secondary education is eligible for that. There's a tuition tax credit and you get it. It's called a T2202 slip from your college university. So anyone who's in college university should be filing their tax return and including that slip in their tax return to claim that tuition credit, even if they have no income, because those tuition credits can be carried forward forever against their future income, or you can even a portion of it can be transferred to a parent or to a spouse if they have income. So these are like small tips that you'd be surprised. A lot of people sitting in college and university right now might not even know about that. So that's very, it's very important. So it, it goes like, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. And I think my point that regardless of what your net worth is, even if it's zero, and even if it's negative because you have student loan debt, well, student loan interest, there's a tax credit for that as well, right? So um, these are all like points that people have to consider. It's not about how much wealth you have and only the wealthiest people in the country need to get advice. Everyone might be able to benefit. And that's part of the reason why I wrote this book. The tips in the book, a lot of people will say they're pretty basic. And it's like pretty introductory, but that's very important for millions of Canadians who don't really know these basic kind of tips. Right. Yeah. It makes sense. You want to get that sort of foundation understood and then, right. yeah, when you get into more advanced tax planning strategies, sure, you have an account for that, uh, but right. def- everyone should have sort of that base. Or I guess at the very least, you read a book like yours and you at least get some things on your radar, right? Where, oh, right. maybe I should ask about this, maybe I should ask about that, because that sounds like it might actually apply to me. And like you were saying, when an account's busy during tax season, they might not be remembered to ask you those things specifically, right? So exactly. um, yeah. that's great. Thanks for those really, really practical tips. That's that's fantastic. Um, and I guess, yeah, for anybody listening, I mean, whether you're, because I know we have a pretty broad audience here. I mean, there's university college students here. There's people who have, who have children who are going to be going to university sooner or already in there. So I, I think these are really, really practical tips for, for pretty much everyone. Um, so thank you for that. That's great. Um, now for this episode, yeah, I primarily wanted to, to focus on how we can reduce our taxes on an ongoing basis. So not just for this year, but before we do that, and you know, considering that taxes are due at the end of this month, is there mm-hmm. anything new for this year that we need to know about when filing our taxes by the end of April? You already mentioned so that, that subscription service piece, but is there anything else that you'd like to mention? Yeah, because of COVID, there's, there's quite a few changes this year. So first of all, anyone who received CERB during 2020, and the new benefits that replace CERB in the fall, like CRB, CRSB, CRCB, or if you received EI, you're, you'll, you'll receive a T4A slip from the government, and EI is on the T4E slip, 
And that all of that is actually income. You have to include it in your tax return. It's taxable income. So if you received CERB or any of the other benefits, you, you have to get that slip from the government. They should have mailed it to you or you can log into your CRA account online and you can access their T4A slip. And you have to include that in your income. And depending on how much other income you have, you may even owe a little bit of tax on it, which you might not be used to. So um, that's probably the most important tip for 2020 is that CERB is taxable. Um, now, a couple other changes they made. Usually tax is payable if you have a tax bill or due on April 30th. Now this year, what they did for certain people below a certain level of income, they are deferring that they won't charge interest for a whole year. If it's, I, I forget offhand what the qualifications are to be eligible for that. I think you have to be below a certain level of income, but they will basically allow you to pay your 2020 tax bill anytime until up until April 30th, 2022, a whole year without charging you interest. So they're granting interest relief um, because they know some people have trouble. If you are receiving CERB, they're assuming you're at a level of income where you really needed that money and now you won't be able to afford the tax bill on it. Um, so that's... That's a one change for 2020. Another big one, the most, uh, I think the biggest, the other biggest one is home office. So 5 million Canadians in 2020 worked from home who usually did not work from home. Okay. And all of these people are eligible to claim a home office deduction on their tax return. So what the CRA did to their credit, I can't believe I'm saying that, but to their credit, they created a simplified, easier version of the deduction to claim home office. And you get to choose whether you want to claim the simplified tax credit or the regular traditional method, which is you have to do a bit more detailed calculations and you have to keep receipts. But if you worked from home because of COVID, um, you will be able to claim a home office deduction. If you want to claim the simple one where you don't have to do anything, you just click the box, it's a $400 deduction which is, it's basically $2 per day for every day you work from home up to a maximum of $400. I think that's how it works. So if you feel, you know what, I really, I think I might be able to benefit more if I claim the traditional method where you actually have to like calculate the square footage of your office compared to the square footage of your whole house and calculate all your home expenses, but not all of them because you can't claim mortgage interest. Um, and you can't really claim property taxes or insurance unless you're in commission income. It's it's very complicated. So you have to make sure you know how to do the details of it. But those are the main things to keep in mind. CERB is taxable income. And the benefits that replace CERB are all taxable. Uh, home office deduction if you work from home. Um, and like I said before, the digital news media tax credit, that's a new one. You can claim maximum up to $500. Um, and this is... There's another one that's, it's been here for a few years, years already since 2016, but if you sold your principal residence, there's been a lot of real estate activity in the past year. People don't realize when you sell your principal residence, the home you live, you must report it on your tax return. Now there's no tax to pay, so you can relax and take a deep breath, but you do have to report it. Um, of course, there are rumors that the government might start implementing a tax on their principal residence and there's a budget the federal government said they will release the budget on April 19th. Um, so we'll wait and see what they propose. I don't think they will propose it. I think there will be a rebellion in Canada if they propose such a thing. Uh, but the rule is you do have to report the sale 
of your principal residence on your tax return, even uh, even though there's no tax to pay. Yeah, those are some great tips. And I suppose as a next action for everybody listening, that, that's quite a few things that Neil just mentioned there. So I, I guess maybe a good next step would be to make sure that if you are using a tax software, that it did ask these things or that it's including them in some way. And these tax softwares, they have support as well. So you can always ask if you're not sure, or just ask your accountant if you know that you weren't asked these questions. Like if you know you worked from home, but your accountant didn't mention anything about working from home when they were requesting documents from you, then that's probably a flag to have that conversation with them. Uh, would that be a good next uh, step, do you think, Neil? Yeah, yeah. Anyone working from home, just keep that in mind. Write that down when you're filing your tax return that you have a choice to claim the simple deduction or the traditional method, which is more detailed. Um, and of course, if you received SERP or any of those benefits, or you know anyone who did, make sure you're including that in your 2020 income. And one thing I recommend, this also has existed for a couple of years already. Um, if you set up your CRA account online, it's called My Account, and I highly recommend everyone do this. You just go on Google, type in CRA My Account, the link will show up and you could register. Um, you'll see all your tax slips there, your T4A slips, your T4. You'll see your past 10 years of notice of assessments, reassessments. You could adjust the past your tax return. You could see your account balance, your TFSA, RSP contribution room. Everything is there. It's actually pretty good. Um, and when you download your tax software, you can click autofill and it will autofill your tax return with the slip they already have on file. Um, so those are like some just helpful tips that makes the process a bit easier, more efficient. And even if you do autofill to autofill what the CRA has on file into your tax software, um, you still want to double check and against the slips you've been mailed already or that are in the CRA system, you have to double check because it's not foolproof. Um, but that's, but it is a helpful tip. It does make it a bit easier. If you just autofill your information, you have your CRA account online. Um, I recommend everyone do that for sure. Mm -hmm. Those are some great tips. And yeah, definitely I've noticed there's been such a change over the years in terms of these different tax softwares just being able to import things directly. So I guess they're trying to prevent some human error, right? And someone mistypes something from one of their slips into the tax software. But yeah, it's, it's really been incredible how much of it now gets auto pre-filled for you uh, to just make this whole tax thing much more manageable for, for a lot of Canadians. So I'm definitely really happy to, to see that. One thing just total kind of off as an aside, one thing that uh, we have a lot of investors, Canadian investors uh, listening to this show. And when you start investing in a taxable account, also known as a non-registered account, uh, you do have to start tracking your adjusted cost base. You have to start, you know, mm -hmm. so that you can calculate your capital gains and taxation on that. It's a whole nother, yeah. well, you already mentioned that, right? Once you're maxing out those RSP TFSAs and now you're investing right. in taxable accounts, that's a whole new level of complication. And there's yes. some tax optimizations that can be done there. One thing that I've noticed noticed is that, well, so I'm with Trade, and they'll actually send you a form that shows all of that as your, you know, your, your capital gains were from if you sold anything in your taxable account. Uh, right. And so I noticed the tax accounting softwares will actually even import that information and they will use that. But I've also sort of heard some you know, others saying you really got to be careful because they may not calculate, even though that's the brokerage, uh, you know, whether it's Questrade or someone else, they may not actually calculate your adjusted cost base properly. And so then you might actually be on the hook. And so you should still be tracking it yourself. And so it yeah. becomes this whole, you know, it's, 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 it's quite the question, right? Because, okay, I'm getting legitimate numbers from a legitimate source, my brokerage, who obviously are regulated and they have to do things the best way they can, yeah. uh, right? But then I'm hearing they might also 
they may also do it incorrectly. You know, what do you recommend for people? Are we okay just using the numbers they do? Uh, like I personally always track my own adjusted cost base and also look at what they do. And then, yeah. you know, and then just to make sure that they're like at least extremely close. What do you suggest? Okay. So yeah, it, this is a great point. So the brokerage has to issue you um, T3 slips, T5 slips, and T5008 slips. Okay. So T3 slips are for, um, I think for like mutual funds and trusts and those types of investments. So if, if you have ETFs and mutual funds or you might get, or partners, uh, you might get a T3 slip. T5 slips are for interest income, dividend income, and the T5008 is the realized capital gain loss. So they'll show you the cost base and the proceeds of disposition, the sale price, right? So you can calculate the capital gain. And all those slips get filed to the CRA. But here's the problem. And here's what I've noticed. The way the slips get filed to CRA, it's very finicky. So the T3 slips, for example, the way if you do autofill T, some, I, I, I see this all the time. So you might receive in the mail one T3 slip, Okay, but on the CRA's autofill, that one slip could show up as like five or 10 different kind of slips and they, they break out the boxes. So it could be very confusing. Now, the T5 slips are usually better. They usually match up with what's on CR, but sometimes not. Sometimes the T5 slip you received could have an amount in box 13 interest income and another amount in box, let's say, 24 dividend income. When you get the slip in the mail, it won't slip. But on the CRA system, it's two slips and they separate it out. And this might be very confusing. Okay. So I actually, so, and then the, the capital gain loss slips, the T508s, like you said, sometimes they appear on the CRA system without any cost base at all. Some of the brokerages don't fill in the cost base. They fill in the sale price, but it's up to you to have the cost base. So according to the CRA, the slip, the cost base is zero, and then you'd have a much larger capital gain, which is not good for you, right? So these are things to keep in mind. Those slips, T5 and T3 slips are usually correct, right? The T508 cost base, I wouldn't trust it, honestly. Um, I think it's important to keep track of the cost base of your investments that are, like you said, that are in the taxable non-registered accounts because those T508 slips uh it's some of the brokerages are better than others at keeping track of the cost base. And sometimes on the CRA site, I, I notice the cost base is missing sometimes. So that's, I, I, I agree with you. I would try to keep track of the cost base. The other thing to keep in mind, T3 slips, if you receive T3 slips every year, the due date to file a T3 slip is March 31st. So whereas the due date for T5, it's February, the end of February. So and in mid-March, You'll probably have most of your slips already by mid-March, maybe end of March. But T3 slips could come in April, first week of April, even second week of April. And actually this year, what I've heard from other accountants is that because of COVID and the lockdowns and the brokerages have had trouble filing the T3 slips on time. And some people still, like we're recording this, it's April 11th as we're speaking right now, but some people still don't have all the T3 slips. So what I recommend people who know that they receive T3 slips every year, don't rush and file your tax return in March or even the first week of April. Wait until the third week of April or even the last week of April. Prepare your tax return, have it ready to go and everything there. But you might receive a T3 slip late. And then, um, so wait till you receive the T3 slip, enter it in, and then you could file, right? And we have that with clients all the time. Clients want to rush and file their tax return the first week of March. And we have to tell them, just wait. 
you're going to receive more slips, right? So don't rush because then we have to refile the tax return and that's annoying. It's not the end of the world, but it's it's still annoying. So um, yeah, you have to be very careful with these slips. And if you're doing odd fill and you know you have investment income on T3s and T5s and T508s, you have to be very, very careful. And you really want to double check. Um, I actually would recommend people who have a lot of those investment income slips. It's a lot easier to do autofill because you one click and hey, you're done. But you have to be so careful. You have to double check it. I even tell people sometimes, maybe you're better off. I hate to say this, like I cringe at saying this, but maybe you're better off manually inputting your your investment income slips just to make sure, right? Because the CRA system and the slips that you have, it might not perfectly match up. The CRA might be missing a slip that you have. You might be missing a slip that the CRA has. So you have to double check these. And I suppose the consequences can be pretty significant because this is at the end of the day income. And so if you fail to report that income because, whoops, I filed my taxes and then I forgot that I'm still waiting for a slip, which isn't coming until April. And then you just, you forgot. Well, if you ever get audited, I mean, they can severely ding you for that, I imagine, right? Well, what happens is they have what's called the matching program. After you file your tax return with all the slips that you have, the CRA automatically will make sure that agrees to what they have on file. This is the whole silliness and insanity of our tax system. The CRA has all your T-slips. They have them. So why do we need to file a tax return? Let them just add up the income from the slips. And then, see, this is my plan I talk about in my book. If you eliminate and abolish all the deductions and credits, and then you lower the tax rate to make up the difference, we wouldn't need to file a tax return because the CRA already has the slips. The brokerages, when you receive your T5 slip, the CRA also receives it from the brokerage. Same thing with your T4, right? When you receive your T4 slip, the employer is giving you a copy and they're filing it to CRA. In fact, if you make a mistake on your tax return, this happens all the time. People input a number on their T4 incorrectly. The CRA will correct it for you. They'll send you a letter with a reassessment from the T1 matching program, and they correct it. So if you file your tax return and you're missing a T5 slip, you're missing a T3 slip or something, the CRA will get in touch with you, and they're going to tell you, here's the slips you're missing. We propose to reassess based on this. Here's the extra tax you owe. Oh, and by the way, here's your penalties and interest as well. And that's what annoys me. That's what bothers me so much that they're charging penalties and interest when you miss a slip that they already have. Why do they need to charge a penalty? It's most likely it's a mistake. You can't, you cannot hide any income that was reported on the slip. It's impossible. CRA has a slip. So when someone misses one slip, it's obviously a mistake. Why are they charging penalties just for honest mistakes like that? So I think what they should do, do and change the system is really just let the CRA kind of autofill the tax return for you. But that has its own flaws because then do we really trust the CRA to not make mistakes when they do that? Like, I don't trust them. So I don't know. Like, it's complicated. But they definitely shouldn't be charging penalties for missing T-slips. Unfortunately, they do. And when they do, you'd have to request relief from taxpayer relief, which can take anywhere from six to 12 months for them to relieve the penalty. So... It's not a fun process. If you miss a slip, they'll reassess you. They'll charge the penalty. Like, I hate when people have to pay penalties to CRA. It really bothers me. So if we could do anything we can to avoid that, it's worth it, In my, at least in my opinion. 
Hence the name, The Grumpy Accountant, the title of your book. So this is, right. <laughs> in case someone was wondering why you called it The Grumpy Accountant, why yeah. are you grumpy? <laughs> I think oh, you just answered that question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just, it's just the inefficiency that bothers me. Because look what we have to do. So approximately 29 million Canadians are going to file a tax return this year. Because there's about 37 million Canadians, but that includes children. So there's about 29 million Canadians who have to file a tax return. That's absolutely insane. We should have a tax system where the majority of people do not even have to file a tax return every year. It's crazy what we do. And there is a way to do that. That's what I talk about in my book. Um, And other countries have that in Europe and other places where employees who get a T4 basically don't have to file. Um, You know, if you have capital gains, okay, you have to file, you have to self-report it, but it could be simpler. Like there are ways to make this a lot simpler for people. Um, And look, the CRA has improved its use of technology. There's no question. Uh, so it's a step in the right direction, but I think there's a long there's a long way to go for sure. And now a quick break to tell you about some of the resources you may find helpful on our Build Wealth Canada site. Real estate season is now in full swing, and with changes in mortgage rates, many Canadians are wondering if they should lock in their rate and what the lowest rates and best terms are if you are buying a house or have a mortgage coming up for renewal. We've also had questions about whether it makes sense to break your mortgage to take advantage of the currently lower rates. So to help you with that, I've brought on best-selling author and mortgage broker Sean Cooper, who has agreed to do free consultations with Build Wealth Canada listeners in case you have any questions about mortgages or would like to see his up-to-date research on the best mortgage rates and terms that he's been able to find from the 70-plus lenders that he monitors here in Canada. It's all completely free, and there are no obligations to get your mortgage through him or anything like that, and you can get in touch with him for a free consultation to get your questions answered over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash Sean. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash S-E-A-N. If you are looking for more investing information, I want to let you know about a free educational resource that I posted for you on the buildwealthcanada.ca site. As you may know, I'm also a speaker at the Canadian Financial Summit, and one of my past talks is a video presentation titled, What Passive Investing Style Is Right For You?, where I go through the pros and cons of the different ways that you can invest in Canada as a passive index investor. Each of these passive investing approaches have their pros and cons. There isn't one single solution that's perfect for everyone. And so this video presentation takes you through what your passive investing options are in Canada, what you can expect to pay in fees with each approach, how tax efficient each one is, and how complex each one of them are so that you can find the one that's the best fit for you. Or if you're already a passive investor, then seeing what you're actually paying on the back end through this presentation just might inspire you to switch to a more cost-effective and tax-efficient approach. So you can stream that entire video presentation for free over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash investing style, all one word. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash investing style. Lastly, you can also get the PDF on the top personal finance tools that I use in Canada by signing up to the newsletter at buildwealthcanada.ca. And if you are looking to learn how to be a do-it-yourself passive investor, definitely check out my course where I show you how to do everything step-by-step and where you can see over my shoulder how I actually invest and how to optimize your investments to pay the lowest possible fees and taxes. And you get one-on-one support from me directly if you have any questions throughout the course as well. So if you want to check that out, it's over at Build wealthcanada.ca slash invest. And now back to the show. 
just to very briefly cover off that, just the cause-based question that I asked for you before, because uh, you, you talked about sort of the how it could be wrong. And so, yes, we definitely should be tracking it ourselves for anybody investing in taxable accounts. I know kind of the thing that I ran into, and I imagine there's lots of other key investors who also ran into this is, okay, you're, do, you're calculating your own adjusted cost base, and then Questrade or whatever brokerage you use sends you theirs. You compare the two. And okay, it's not exact to the penny, but you know, one's maybe off by a few dollars, let's say, right? But like, you know, a very negligible amount, right? right. Um, in that scenario, would you recommend that you use your own numbers or would you recommend that you use the brokerage's numbers? Because hey, that's the brokerage, you know, they've got people on this, they're like a very official source, you know, just just to not raise any sort of unnecessary, like, like my guys might just thinking of it logically, I'm thinking right. more flags might get raised if the CRA says, well, hold on, we got this slip from your brokerage saying you made this much in capital gains, but you're saying you, you actually said when you filed, you said you made a different amount and I could see that being like a flag, right? Um, right. So I'm thinking like if it's close enough, Maybe yeah. use the brokerage. Well, what are numbers? What are your thoughts on that? That's a good idea. I I think it depends on how far off it is. Yeah. I think you're right. If it's a few dollars off or ten dollars off, mm-hmm. sometimes it's ten dollars off because when people calculate their own cost base, they might forget to include the commission yes. that they paid when they purchased uh, a stock or whatever the purchase was, and the brokerages usually might include that in the cost base, um, or they might not. Maybe you included it in your cost base, but they don't include it in their cost mm-hmm. base. But you are allowed to deduct it, um, and there's a separate box in the tax return where you could you put in cost base, proceeds, and then any other transaction fees. So you could put in the commission. It's a deductible mm-hmm. cost. So sometimes that's the difference. Sometimes there's differences um, because of like return on capital, right? When yes. you if you receive distributions, and that gets pretty complicated from the, it could get very that. complicated. Yeah, yeah. So if you have small, tiny differences with the brokerage, then I think it's fine to go with the brokerage numbers. Um, yeah, c- keeping track of the cost base is complicated. If there's like a very big difference, then you have to look, well, why is there a difference? Because the cost base, at least part of it should be simple. On the day you purchased the, whatever the security was, you should be able to look at your activity, transaction activity in that day and see the cost base. Here's what, you know, what did you pay for it, right? Um so that's basically your cost base. Now, over time, if you're receiving distributions and dividends and uh, you reinvest the dividends, I mean, reinvested dividends are actually dividend income, right? And and you get a T5 slip for that. But sometimes distributions from, from a partnership uh, that's on the T5013 slip or distributions from a trust mutual fund that's on the T3 slip, that's where it gets complicated because some of the distribution might not be income. It might be return on capital, Right. And that gets added to your cost base, so it can it can get um, or is it subtracted from your cost? It if I I don't even remember, but um, yeah, you have to like. I I think you should be in the habit of keeping track of it on your own an Excel spreadsheet. Um, I think it's a good habit to get into. It's annoying, certainly, and that's one of the advantages of using your RSP and TFSA and RESP is that you don't really have to worry about it as much. But if you have non-registered investments, you do have to worry about this, unfortunately, and you have to have a way to keep track. But small differences, I wouldn't really worry about. And I think it's a good habit to get into when you do purchase something, you print a PDF, save a PDF of, of the, I mean, they'll send you an investment, usually a confirmation. They send you a statement with, that shows your purchase price, the commission paid, the date, 
the number of, right, the quantity of shares, they show you all that. So keep that, keep that on file. And you could reference back to it to prove if you ever had to prove to the CRA what your cost space is, because you think the brokerage is a different amount, you could prove to them, look, here's my purchase confirmation. Here's my cost base, right? Um, so you you would be able to prove it if you had to, if there was some sort of audit or something. Yeah, I always do the screenshots uh, of like from actual cross trade, and then also right. put that in a spreadsheet as well to calculate right. the cost base and all that. Yeah, just in case, because I, yeah, the big thing is that if you ever get audited or something, you want to be able to show that paper trail that you're not trying to do some sort of tax avoidance strategy or anything like that. Uh, but yeah, right. you mentioned the, the the return of capital, those things. Like for anybody listening, yeah, if you just Google that, like return of capital, you know, ETFs or whatever, is just it gets very complicated very fast. And I remember when I first went down that rabbit yeah. hole, I was thinking, how the heck are people managing their investments in their taxable accounts? Like this is not right. like, like I'm in this field, I'm a giant money nerd and I'm like really trying to wrap my head around this. Yeah. And so for someone that's like, look, I just want to like, you know, invest a piece of my paycheck every month and then I'm done for the month, right? I mean, yeah. how they, 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 they can't possibly, the CRA can't possibly expect people to be, okay, well, let's look at a return of capital. Let's use these other services to pull the, the amounts and like double verification and all this kind of, like, it just seems like, how could they even, you know, audit that? I don't know. And that's why I was thinking, well, for, you know, like 99.9% .9 of people, if it's, you get that slip from your brokerage, that there's a good chance that that is probably correct. And right. so it's like verify with your own numbers to make sure it's yeah. not completely off. Like you said, in case the brokerage forgot to fill something in, you mentioned some are better than others. Um, but I'm thinking, yeah, like if it's close, like, I mean, personally, I've just, when, when I find out that it's close enough, like, you know, like yeah. $20, $30, whatever, right. I'll just, I'll say, okay, I'm just going to use Quest Trades numbers because yeah. that way everything is consistent. Um, right. As opposed to me saying, no, I'm right. I know better than Quest Trade. And, right. then, and then if the CRA asks, you know, wants to audit me or whatever, I guess now the burden is on me to say, right. hey, Cornell, why are your numbers different than Quest Trade? And so that's why I was yeah. like, okay, you know what? Even if I miss out on $20 or whatever, okay, I'm just going to use Quest Trade numbers because that way it's consistent. That way we're both saying, yeah. everyone's saying the same thing. I mean, do you agree with that sort of reasoning? Yeah, look, if it's $30 off, right? $30 capital gain, remember $15 of it is mm. tax-free, right. right? So it's a $15 tax uh, difference in terms of your income, but you're not you're not paying $15 of tax. The 15, let's say your capital gain is $15 higher or $30 higher if you go with the brokerage. So $15 extra will be added to your income and you'll pay tax depending on your tax bracket. Let's say you have a 40% tax rate. So you'll pay 40% of $15. Right. So you'll pay either $9 or $10 or whatever, um, or sorry, $5 or $6 um, extra tax. So mm -hmm. it's not the end of the world yeah. either way. Even if So if your capital gain is $30 lower, so you're going to pay $5 or $6 less in tax, mm -hmm. like what the CRA is going to reassess you for $6? Okay, you'll pay $6 extra tax. What's the big deal? Yeah. Right? So I agree with you. If it's that small a difference mm -hmm. or even $100 difference, it's probably something with the commissions, return on capital, and you could rely on the brokerage uh, statement. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a problem. Right, because um, it, it's so easy to go down that rabbit hole, right? Where, okay, it's off, and now I'm going to be researching why. It's like you're basically auditing your thing versus their thing, and you could spend yeah. hours on that. And like yeah. you said, okay, if you're missing out on $15 capital gain, and let's say, even let's say you're in the lowest tax bracket, so you're going to pay well, like 20% on $15. Right. I mean, is that yeah. really worth the hours of your time? Right. That's three dollars yeah. yeah yeah so i've just defaulted to okay yeah. very close let's yeah. just go with the brokerage's numbers 
Yeah. You know, okay. That, that's, yeah. So sorry for anybody that's not at that, in, that doesn't invest in taxable accounts, but I know just from the questions I received from the show, we do have a lot of listeners that, you know, have maxed up the RSP TFSA, do yeah. invest in taxable accounts. And so this is, I mean, this is a, a real thing, right? Because we're, it's like the responsibility is on us as Canadians to track this properly and we don't want to get in trouble with the CRA. But I mean, it's, it's, it gets so complicated, especially when you get this return of capital. And like you, meant, yeah. you mentioned the three forms already, and I'm sure some people's eyes glazed over because it's like, well, hold on, which form was that again? And it just, yeah, T3, <laughs> T5, T508. Yeah. Listen, it's actually, and there's there's even another one I didn't mention, T5013, if you invest in partnerships. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's even more complicated. Those are very complicated slips. I get a headache just thinking about it. But if you look at- And you're um, an account, so imagine the rest of oh. us, right? <laughs> Listen, the point you make about responsibility and burden being on Canadian taxpayers to comply with the system and understand it, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because even if you don't have non-registered investments and you o- only have your investments in the TFSA, RRSP, RESP, even that is very complicated. And the burden is on you to figure out, hmm, should I invest in my TFSA or my RRSP or both? Which one's better? I don't know. What about the RESP? Like, it's very complicated. And most people will need to get tax advice or do a lot of reading on their own to figure out how exactly does the TFSA work? How does the RSP work? Look, the TFSA was created in 2009. So we're over 10 years now with the TFSA in Canada. Over the past 10 years, 12 years, I cannot tell you how many people have been hit with penalties for over-contributing to the TFSA based on honest mistakes because they didn't understand the rules. Like, And, and the CRA, to their credit, to their credit, has relieved most of those penalties because they knew, look, it's new, people don't understand the rules. But why did they make something so complicated that people don't understand the rules? Why did they make, say, I, I have a whole chapter in my book about this saving money, how to save money. And I talk about TFSA, RRSP, RESP. I try to explain it in plain English. Um, but they made it so complicated that it's just like the burden is on us every individual Canadian, right? 28 million tax filers to figure it out. And in my opinion, why don't we just do, why don't we just call it even? And how about you just abolish income tax for everyone for the first $100,000 of income is tax-free and forget about, and then abolish TFSAs and RRSPs and RESPs. Because if you think about it, if you can earn $100,000 of income tax-free every year, and you're in retirement and you have an investment portfolio of let's say $2.5 million, well, 5% or 4% of that is $100,000 of income, right? It's tax-free. So th- they can they could find other ways to encourage people to save money. The whole point of RRSP, RESP, TFSA, the government wants to encourage individual Canadians and families to save money. It's ironic because the government doesn't save money. They do the opposite. They have a... T- trillion dollars of debt now federally you add up all the provincial debt as well and we're like the Canadian governments are grossly in debt and have grossly mismanaged their finances but they they want us to be to save money rsp tfsa but they made it too complicated so the micromanagement of our lives and trying to create incentives for us to save money which i like i mean i like the idea of it but why don't they do it in a simpler way right that's my that's my um criticism of our of the whole tax system it puts the burden on us to figure this out and the problem with that is it actually hurts people 
who are lower and middle income because they either can't afford like better tax advice to structure their, their, their affairs properly, or they just don't know about it, right? Whereas the highest income, highest net worth people, they can afford the best advisors to make sure they're, they're maximizing um, all the deductions and credits and all of these uh, ways to minimize tax. But people in lower middle income brackets, like maybe they can't afford like to have the best accountants in the country, like minimize their tax bills, right? So there's some inherent, like these are inherent problems with having an overly complicated tax system. And, um, you know, that's really a whole, it's a whole conversation. So I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll try to like lay off on it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember you mentioning that in your book, and and it is interesting how other countries do their taxes, and how it's not like everybody does it the same way Canada does, and how the U.S. does. There actually are some pretty drastic differences with some of the other countries. So it's an interesting, interesting thing to think about for sure. These mm-hmm. um, these next few questions, we've you've already touched on them, but I, I maybe I'll mention them again just in case you have anything to add, or let us know of that. Pretty much what you said earlier already covered it. So the next question I had was what's the easiest way to screen the different credits and other Canadian government benefits to make mm. sure we're getting all of the ones that we're eligible for? So you mentioned the back of the of the tax form, I believe was one of them. Do you have anything to add to that one or do you feel we covered that one sufficiently earlier? I think, yeah, if you look at like um, on your tax return, basically page one to nine, if you're filling in your tax return, um, has a list, basically lists most of the deductions and credits on um, uh, and your province might have other ones. So you could look at your provincial tax schedule. The website taxes, taxtips.ca is a good one. Um, and there's a CRA guide. Like I said, if you Google, I think it's called 5000-G uh, CRA guide, your T1 guide, right? T1 is the personal tax return. And it kind of explains all the deductions and credits there as well. And whatever tax software you're using, uh, if you're using TurboTax, for example, you go to their website, you go to support or help or community, and you'll see people asking questions and you could just Google search like moving expenses deduction and and you could see what people write about that. So there's all sorts of questions there and it, you can even type in there a list of deductions and credits, right? And you'll see what re- they have all sorts of resources as well. Um, so there's a lot of resources online where you could um, find these answers. Would you generally recommend to check out the actual Canadian site first, the, the actual government site. Just I figure that's that way you're getting it right from the horse's mouth. You're they're going to be updating that obviously with everything. Do you think that's a good starting point for people? The CRA website, yeah. Like if you Google CRA T1 guide, mm-hmm. it'll you follow the links and you'll be able to download it. You just have to be very careful because sometimes on the CRA website, some of the websites you'll see the date says updated 2017. Right. So then you can't rely on that. So you just have to make sure you're at the right website where it near the top of the website, it will show you the date that this was updated and the tax year to which this applies mm. because every year they release a new guide. So we're filing 2020 tax now. So you have to make sure you have the right year or else you might be missing something or doing something differently. I'm, I'm glad you gave that tip, right? Cause you know, there's lots of blogs that write about taxes and things like that, but it's, they like, might well, be five years old. But they may be yeah. years old. That kind of, so I'm thinking, okay. Like, and, Oh, sorry, they, ahead, they yeah. also, yeah, they also might be from a different country. Like I've seen people, people send me articles. Sometimes clients send me articles. Neil, why didn't you tell me I could deduct mortgage interest? Look at this, ta- <laughs> look at this article. I'm looking at it. This is 
from the States. Yeah, it's like New York American Times or thing. something. Yeah. This is an accountant <laughs> from Florida. Like, give me a break. This is not applying Canada. Like, and they're like, oh, I missed that. I thought it was because they just Google right. like tax deductions and all these like American websites pop up. Yep. So like you gotta be careful you even have the right country, right? And let alone the right year. Mm-hmm. So that's that's an important point as well. Awesome. No, that, that that's some uh, really good advice. So thank you. And uh, and yeah, I mean we already talked a little bit about it, but we're talking about good resources and then your book is, is one of them as well. So maybe tell us before we go into further tax questions, tell us a little bit more about your book and, and what we can learn from it. Sure. Yeah. So the grumpy accountant that started years ago. <laughs> I, I I've been practicing as an accountant for over 10 years. I was an articling student for three, four years and I started my own practice. And after a few years, I started to get really frustrated because I really started to understand how this system works and I saw the inefficiency and I'm calling CRA every day and dealing with them every day. And I'm dealing with all these problems that I started to realize, wait a minute, none of this is necessary. My whole job is not necessary. Why do we need help filing our tax returns? Why can't people file on their own? Now, many people in Canada do file on their own now. I think it's something like 8 million Canadians are using NetFile, which means they're using one of those tax softwares on their own, which is pretty good. But that still means like 20 million Canadians, because there's about 28, 29 million tax filers, are still seeking professional help to file their tax return. So in my opinion, that's that shows something is wrong with the system. And what happened was I started to complain every day to my wife. After if I finished work, I would complain and complain and complain. And she got tired of it. But she said, Neil, some people might find this interesting, not necessarily her, right? But some <laughs> other people. So she suggested I write. Why don't, why don't you write some blogs or some articles about this? And posted online. And I thought that was a great idea. So I opened a Microsoft Word document and I just started to write all the stories that I went through. And um, I realized, wait a minute, this isn't just a few articles. I can write a whole book about this, right? And I I decided at a certain point, I'm going to write a book about the Canadian tax system. Um, And at a certain point in the writing, I realized like, as I was writing every day, I would go back and review what I wrote the previous day. And I realized it was so boring and even I didn't want to read it. And I realized if the writer doesn't want to read it, that's a problem, right? Like I have to figure out a way to write this in a way that's like entertaining and funny. Nobody wants to read a book about the Canadian tax system, right? And I didn't want to read what I was writing. So around that time, it just so happened, I read The Wealthy Barber, right? Which is one of the most famous Canadian personal finance books written by Dave Chilton, He wrote an updated, it was originally published, I think in the 80s or something. He wrote an updated version that was published more recently, I think 2011, maybe. Um, The Wealthy Barber Returns. I actually really recommend it for personal finance for Canadians. It's a great book. And The Wealthy Barber, the original book, it's written as a story. It feels like you're reading a novel. There's characters, there's like a plot, and it's like very readable. That's why it became so famous. So I thought, oh, that's brilliant. So I rewrote what I had written so far in my book in the format of a story. So the grumpy accountant features Jerry, Elaine, and George, and they bumble through the Canadian tax system. George is the accountant and Jerry is, and and Elaine are the main characters. And it goes through every stage in life. It it reads as a story. So you read about Jerry from his first, the time he gets his very first job, he receives his first T4 slip all the way until the end of life. And I don't want to give away the ending. So it reads like a novel. So it's, it's very readable. Um, if you're a Seinfeld fan, you'll like the book. I won't say anything more about that. But if you like Seinfeld, you'll love the book because there's references throughout. Okay. Um, uh, and I wrote it in that format because I knew pe- 
people will people won't read a book about the Canadian tax system unless it's like entertaining, funny, easy to read. So it's not really for accountants. Like accountants have read it, they enjoy it, but it's really for lay people. It's a great introduction to the Canadian tax system. So there's 29 tax tips in the book that are that every Canadian should know, especially anyone in grade 12 should read this book. Or anyone in college university should read the book. It's a great intro foundation to the tax system. It goes through the entire life cycle, saving money, death, estate planning, getting married, having kids, starting a business, um, starting your first job. Like it really goes through the cycle. Um, I actually reached out to Dave Chilton, who wrote The Wealthy Barber, and I asked for his permission to write the book in the format similar to his, because I thought, am I stealing his idea? I don't want to cause problems and steal intellectual property. And you're getting sued by I, David Shilton as well as the Seinfeld. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> if Seinfeld sued me, I'd be very happy because it'd be great publicity. Um, but I didn't want, I think Castle Rock owns the rights to Seinfeld now. So I, I was I was worrying about getting a letter from Castle Rock, but so far nothing. Um, but there's actually fair use laws and copyright laws called fair use. You're, you know, I'm not really like, infringing on anything yeah yeah. you're using the other names it's not like you're yeah yeah yeah, exactly um but dave children um he was great he called me and we spoke a few times on the phone he gave me some great advice he told me to put the tax tips in there because he said to me nobody's going to read this book if 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 you don't provide them information useful ideas that they can implement in their life why would anyone read it and i think he's absolutely right so that's where the grumpy accountant came from. And of course, the title is true. I get very grumpy in tax season. The Canadian tax system <laughs> really frustrates me. It's ridiculous. The fact that there's tax courts, right? The fact that any Canadian would have to go to court because of their tax return. It's just, it's insane when you think about it. The CRA has 44,000 employees. The budget is almost $5 billion a year. Okay. The IRS has 80,000 employees, but the U.S. population is 10 times the size of Canada. We're doing something wrong here. Um, Canadians spend on average $500 per family to file their tax returns. That's $7 billion a year. Um, That's just personal tax compliance. That doesn't include corporate tax and small business. Like something is inherently wrong with our tax system. And I felt like I can't remain silent anymore. I want to do something about it. And I'm trying to start this movement to simplify the tax system, even if it means that like I won't be able to earn a living from this anymore, I have to find a new job. That's fine. That's it's better for millions and millions of Canadians, right? Like we shouldn't create a tax system so that CRA employees and tax accountants and tax lawyers can earn a nice living. We should create a tax system that works for 28 million Canadian tax filers in the most efficient way. So that's the idea of the grumpy accountant. Um, and it's like it's like my little baby. Um, and uh, I, I I hope people read it and like it and, and, you know, get in touch with me and let me know their feedback as well. Awesome. And what's the way you would recommend for everyone to get it? Just search on Amazon Kindle or what do you suggest? So it's on Amazon. There's paper, the paperback you can buy on amazon.ca. Uh, the ebook is available. Ebook and audiobook are available everywhere. So wherever you read your ebooks and get your audiobooks from, they're available everywhere. I actually narrated the audiobook myself. Awesome. Um, which was a lot of fun and like kind of a grueling process. So if you want to hear me rant for five hours, you can download the audiobook. It will soon also be on indigo.ca. I mean the ebook is there, but the paperback also will soon be available on the Indigo website as well. 
Awesome. All right. Well, yeah, great. Great. Thanks for sharing that. And I'll link out to it as well uh, in the show notes on uh, buildwealthcanada.ca for anybody that wants to check it out. Uh, yeah. Or they just you search Grumpy Accountant and they'll, they'll see your name, Neil, there and can get it yeah. there. That's awesome. Thank you. So uh, yeah, yeah let, let's move on to, to the questions. Is there any other sort of low-hanging fruit in terms of tax savings that you find Canadians sometimes miss? Okay. So the, I think the main things are, um, first of all, file your tax return on time. If you're receiving a tax refund, there's no penalty if you file late. But if you owe tax payable, sometimes people with investment income might owe tax because there's no tax deducted at source. File on time. That way you avoid any penalties to CRA. Um, and also you avoid kind of getting in their system as a late filer. Maybe they start flagging your account. So you want to always file on time, prioritize it put a reminder in your Google calendar or something, right? So that's one thing. Avoid penalties if you can. Why pay them more if you don't have to, right? Some of the other, I guess, low-hanging fruit would be, we kind of talked about this a little bit, max out your registered accounts before investing in a non-registered account, right? TFSA, RRSP, RESP are very powerful tools for long-term wealth building because the tax savings each year or maybe you could call it tax deferral, right? The RRSP is more of a tax deferral. But that really adds up, especially compounding over time by not having to pay tax on that every year. That really adds up. So there are some people who like, I've had clients that didn't really know, they kind of, they heard of the TFSA or RRSP, but they didn't know how it works. They thought it was too complicated. They didn't want to go to the bank and set it up. And I convinced them, I said, it's worth it. You go to the bank, you open the account, you'll have to sit there for an hour, sign some forms, whatever, but make use of it, right? Like, don't neglect that. Other things are like just the regular deductions and credits. Most people know about the RRSP deduction, the child care deduction. Most people know about the, those big ones, donation tax receipts, medical expenses. I think people are familiar with those, but there's some other ones that are very valuable. Like for example, disability tax credit. I, they chose a horrible name for this because a lot of people don't realize th that they might be eligible for the disability tax credit. They don't see themselves as you know disabled or living with a disability, but they don't understand that the credit is very poorly named. So for example, I've had this with a few clients and, and family members of mine, someone who has type one diabetes or even or type two diabetes might be eligible for the disability tax credit. Hmm. Now you might not think of yourself as living with a disability, right? But the way that it works, you might be eligible. Another example is Crohn's and colitis. People have stomach issues. A lot of people have sensitive stomachs. Some people get diagnosed with certain, um, you know, I don't know if they're called diseases or conditions, medical conditions. Those people could be eligible for this credit. And what happens is when you're eligible for disability tax credit, you can get approved going back 10 years in the past. Wow. You can go back in time. I have a chapter in my book about traveling back in time and adjusting prior year tax returns up to 10 years. And that could be like $1,800 a year at $18,000 tax-free if you were eligible for the disability tax credit for the past 10 years and didn't know about it. There's other conditions that qualify for that as well. If you have a child who has ADD or ADHD or autism, sometimes those could qualify, right? Depending on the condition. So there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of conditions there. If you go to the CRA website, type in, go to Google, type in CRA disability tax credit. The CRA website will come up and it explains that you could follow the links and see what qualifies, right? And it, it's a bit, um, I, I just think they named it kind of poorly, 
um, I don't know what I would rename it. I haven't thought about that. But but again, it's not necessarily that you're you know disabled or have a disability, whatever that means, right? Because that's very subjective. So there's things like that that people have to realize. There's another one called the caregiver credit. Maybe you have an elderly parent that you're caring for all the time and it prevents you from working, and they don't have that. The person you're um, taking care of doesn't have an income or they have a very low income. Uh, whether they live with you or not, you might be eligible for tax credit for that. Um, so there's all, there's all sorts of things like that that you have to watch out for. There's pension income splitting. People who are 65 or older or even under 65, certain type of pension income, even at a younger age, could be split with a spouse uh, or common law partner. So there's things like that. So there's a, there's a lot that goes into this. Um, so low-hanging fruit, I think it's important to try and stay up to date if you read a lot, if you always read the business section of the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, the National Post, and you, they always have articles about the tax system and the new tax credits. And that's a good way to stay up to date on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, one of the things you mentioned was maxing out your TFSA and your RRSP before investing in the taxable accounts. I've heard of there's some situations where if somebody, let's say, has a corporation, it may even be more advantageous for them to, instead of putting into the RRSP, to maybe invest in the corporation. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. I know yeah. it gets, I've read up on this and it's pretty complicated. Uh, yeah. can, can you maybe give us sort of a, I don't know, maybe like a high level thing and, and like in what scenario should we go down that rabbit hole with our account to see if, hey, maybe I should be investing within my corporation instead of within an RRSP? Right. So that's a great question. And it depends on the person's situation. You know, it depends on what other income they have personally, what their long-term goals are. It depends how they feel about Canada pension plan, right? Because if you want to contribute to your RRSP, you have to pay yourself a salary and then you have to pay into CPP, right? So there's all these factors that go into it. Um, One of my favorite writers in Canada is Jamie Golombic. He's the head of tax, uh, CIBC Wealth Management, He's there, and he writes articles in the National Post and the Financial Post almost every few days, um, and he writes about all these kinds of issues. He wrote, I, I don't know where you would find the exact link, you'd have to Google it, CIBC, Jamie Golombic, RRSP versus Corporation. He ran the numbers, he produced an ebook that I think is for free, you can download, where he basically did these kind of calculations for Canadian business owners who have their business corporation, small business corporation, and what's, is it? Are they better off just, you know, leaving all the money in their corporation and only taking out what they need for their personal use and then the rest of it invest with on the corporate level? Or are they better off paying yourself a salary of approximately 154, 160,000 or 164,000, whatever it is to max your RSP deduction every year. Um, and then the rest you leave in the corporation. He ran the numbers. He actually found that it is actually still beneficial to be maxing out your RSP each year. And anything left over, obviously, yeah, you can invest within the corporation. He found that because of the tax savings right now, when you make that RRSP contribution, plus every year within the RRSP, there's no tax on the investment income, it's still beneficial. It's still worth it, even though you do have to withdraw money from your corporation, pay yourself a salary of, I think the amount is... 164,000 now, I forget exactly, to create that maximum RSP contribution room, right? Um, it's And you pay, you you take the personal tax hit and you have to pay into CPP. But overall, overall, when you take into account everything, he saw there's still some benefits. So I recommend to business owners, 
to still give the RSP the cons- consideration to think about it. Some people still don't like it. They they think it's not beneficial because later on they'll have to pay tax, and that's true. But even when you withdraw from your business corporation later on, you have to pay tax as well. Now you might get offset tax in the corporation because you get a dividend refund, right, in the corporation. And um, so it, it is, you're right, it's very complicated. But high level, any Canadian who has a corporation because they're running their business through a corporation, most likely is using an accountant already to file their tax return. And they should have this conversation mm-hmm. with their accountant at least once a year. Once annual tax planning, and again, like I said, not in tax season, and they should be talking about TFSA contributions, RSP contributions, um, even though they have the corporation and can invest on the corporate level. It's still something to consider, and I agree it is very complicated. Uh, I think it's too complicated. We need to simplify it. Um, But the way it is right now, absolutely, people still should consider Mm -hmm. TFSA, RSP, even if they have the corporation. Awesome. Oh, that said, it also sounds like you're saying it's not like there is just one golden rule where, oh, you should always invest, you know, max out your RSP, even if you have a corporate, because I, I think you mentioned there's, there are a whole bunch of different sort of factors and preferences you may have that may sway you one way versus the other. Would that be fair to say? It, yeah, absolutely. It depends. Some people don't like like some people, for example, they like to invest in real estate, rental properties. You can't really do that within your RSP, right? So unless you buy a REIT, right? REITs are, I'm sure many of your listeners know, real estate investment trusts. And um, that's the way to kind of own real estate in those registered accounts. You buy a REIT and they pay nice dividends and you can reinvest the dividends. Um, I like REITs a lot, but you know, they could be risky. But some people who like to own rental properties that they run and manage on their own, like they own a house somewhere or a triplex or duplex they own, uh, that... So you can't really do that within the RSP or TFSA necessarily. Um, and therefore, some people, the RSP might not meet their objectives, right? So so it, depend, it always depends on the person. So th- there is not one rule, uh, one size fits all. Although I do usually tell everyone, max out your TFSA every year. Um, and most people also max out your RSP if you can as well. And some people would even say, actually, if you can only do one, you're better off with the RSP as opposed to TFSA. Some people say the opposite. It just depends on your level of income, right? If you have high enough income, do both. Like try to maximize both of them. If you are at a lower income bracket, some people say you should max out your TFSA instead of RSP because the RSP deduction isn't really worth as much if you're in the low bracket. Um, and the TFSA is more flexible if you need the money, right? So, But it, it depends if you will need the money or not need the money. Some people say even if you're in one of the lower brackets, the RSP is still beneficial because you still save some tax now, right? And then you and that you know the refund you get from your RSP contribution can put that into your TFSA maybe, right? Or save it otherwise. Um, so it like it is complicated. Um, it's stuff, and there is no one size fits all. It, it, this is something where you really need to get that personalized advice. Unfortunately, if it's up to me, it would be simple, and it would be like. It'd be way simpler and people wouldn't need this kind of advice. But the way it is right now, I think it's important to get that kind of specific advice tailored to your situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I'll mention uh, real quick, because I know we ran into this and I think this might apply to a lot of Canadians with uh, with kids. So the sort of typical general advice uh, in the past was, okay, you can put your money into the RSP, but once you're kind of reduced your income to that lowest tax bracket, it's not really worth it anymore because you're already in the lowest tax bracket. So, you know, don't do RSP at that point. 
However, with the Canada Child Benefit, that actually can now make it worthwhile, depending on your situation, to actually invest, to actually still put money into the RSP, even though you may already be in the lowest bracket because of the extra money you're going to get through the Canadian Child Benefit. And so this is, you know, you got to actually do some math and calculations on this. So I know I had my account crunch the numbers on this. Um, yeah. I had I had Ed Rempel, who's a financial planner we've had on the show. He's written some great articles about it already and actually showing sort of like updated tax rates if we factor in Canada Child Benefit you know, for, for Canadians that do have children. So it actually complicates the situation even more, which is, yeah. I know not what we want to hear because taxes are complicated enough. Yeah. Um, but it, it just goes to say that it does make sense to work closely with the account. And like you were saying, Neil, to have those strategy sessions, right. Or, or at least a session um, yeah. during off peak season, because yeah. Yeah, like in our specific case, like that was always the rule I went for before was we always, you know, try to maximize our speed to get us to the lower yeah. bracket. And then anything above that, we put the FSA. If they're right. maxed out, then we do taxable account. But now right. after the account crunch numbers, after Ed did the numbers for us, it turns out, oh, we actually should pump a bit more in because we're going to make it up through the extra Canada Child Benefit payment. So right. that may actually apply to you, to some of the listeners on the show as well. Uh, so definitely just something I think to have on your radar, have someone that is an expert at this, or you know, your, your accountant, for example, to actually crunch the numbers for you uh, because yeah. it may actually be worthwhile. I think that's such a good point. And it's funny. I absolutely, I agree. It's a very good point. And it's funny what you said about if you take, if you calculate your family's actual tax rate, Taking into account the kind of child benefit, right? I've done this calculation for clients. They can't believe it. Mm -hmm. Many people, many families, it turns out if you really take into account the kind of child benefit, they're not paying tax at all. <laughs> because if, if you have some, some people might have three, four kids, if you can believe it. Okay. Five kids even. Okay. There are some families like that. And the kind of child benefit ends up really adds up. And if you look at their actual taxes payable, that both spouses paid overall, but then you factor in the kind of child benefits they're getting, which are tax-free, they end up either paying a very, very low rate of tax, like under 10%, like as a family, if you really add it up, and some people even zero or even negative, they're getting back money. And that's why it, one of the things that bothers me about the kind of child benefit, it's, and this is just my opinion, people can disagree with it, but I think actually, and I've seen this in my practice over the past number of years, it creates incentives for people to decide, you know what, I'm better off actually, like not really working because the tax yeah. hit, um, like, like maybe not working as much or cutting down hours, because even though overall, I'll make less money, it's not really as much less taking into account the lower income tax bill, plus the increase in kind of child benefits, I'd rather have an extra couple of days free, right? Now, maybe that's the intention of government with this, I don't know. But it's created a structure, what I call a structural deficit in government finances, the federal government pre-COVID was running $20 billion deficits every year. Now, why is that? Well, the Canada Bene child benefit was $25 billion a year. The last fiscal year that I wrote about, the 2018-19, I think, fiscal year, the, but the deficit was $20 billion. Canada child benefit is $25 billion a year. So what's happening is people are basically, and, and this ties into your question about the people with small business corporations. Every accountant advises their business owner clients, leave your money in operation as much as possible. Only take out what you need, show as little personal income as possible, maybe just enough to max your RSP, and that's it. Don't show any more because your personal tax will be higher and your account child benefits will be lower. Mm -hmm. Leave your money in your corporation, and then you'll get more account child benefits, pay less income tax overall, right? The government doesn't look 
when, when they calculate the kind of child benefits you're entitled to, they don't look at your corporate income, right? Right. They, they don't look at what you already have in your TFSA, RSP. You could have a million dollars in your RSP and TFSA and still be eligible for the Canada Child Benefit. It's pretty like, it's like, really? Does, do families who have a million dollars in their TFSA and RSP need the Canada Child Benefit at $100 a month? Like, it's pretty ridiculous, right? Um, and, and that was also the problem with CERB. Like, people were getting CERB not based on their family income, but based on individual income. Families who needed, they were giving 16-year-old kids CERB who were in high school, who, like, maybe for some reason they, they qualify for it. Like, so the kind of child benefit is creating these weird incentives. So I agree, absolutely, you have to take that into account. If you want to know, how much tax am I really paying? I think you got to factor in if you're receiving kind of child benefit the way you think about that, it's almost as of a refund of taxes paid, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why right now in the news, there's all these articles about UBI, universal basic income, guaranteed minimum income. Is that a good idea? Is that a bad idea? That's our whole other podcast episode. We could talk, you could talk about that for hours. There's a lot of research, conflicting research. There's all these studies done. Um, but one of the things I like to point out in Canada, in a certain sense, we almost already have a universal basic income. Uh, if you're 65 or older, we actually have the guaranteed income supplement, which is literally called guaranteed income. So 65 or older, we already have it. We have a guaranteed income. And then under 65, so if you have children, you get the kind of child benefit. And if you're very in a like in the lowest, lowest income, you get GST credits. If you live in Ontario, Ontario trilling benefits and other provinces have their own similar tax credits. Um, and there's also a tax credit called the Canada Workers Benefit which is for the, the lowest income bracket, up to $20,000 of income, you don't pay any tax if you're working and earning 20,000. So there's all these sorts of credits where the lowest income people aren't really paying any tax. And, and if you have a family with children and you're in a lower income bracket, you might be getting a lot of kind of child benefits. So in a certain sense, it's like we almost kind of have a basic income. I think if we just rejigged it, we could have it within the spending of the current budget because they just have to like reassess how much money is going to families that don't need it right now and then kind of like reallocate that. And I talk about that in my book. Um, so anyways, I the, I think you're right. The point you mentioned that the counter child benefit should be taken into account when you're, when you're looking at your overall family tax planning and, and tax situation. Yeah. And for anybody not familiar with it, basically you get a certain amount per child, but then as, and correct me if I have any part wrong here, Neil, but for any, basically at $30,000 household income is when they start clawing back the benefits. So you get less and less, basically the more money you make. And so hence what Neil was saying about if you, let's say you have a corporation and you keep some of that money in there and you only take out as much you need. Well, now you you might've made like 150,000 in your corporation, but if you only took out let's say 30,000, right? Well, then technically you're, you know, you're 30,000. And right. so if that's actually, if that's your entire household income, because maybe your spouse is a stay-at-home spouse, then you actually get nothing clawed back. Uh, that kind of, is that, would that be a correct way to uh, say it, Neil? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, and it gets clawed back entirely if your family income hits 200,000. Mm-hmm. Okay, so families that make more than 200,000 family income, they don't receive anything. But if you receive, let's say your family comes $150,000, you might be paying, you know, your family tax bill, maybe it's thirty, $35,000, let's say, right, for the year, let's just say, and you might receive $100 a month in Canada child benefits. At that point, it's just silliness. Like, if you're if, if you're able to afford $35,000 of tax every year, do you really need $100 a month from the government? Like, you're paying $35,000. Why don't they just lower the tax rate? 
So it's just kind of an inefficient way. It's I that's my beef with it. it it's a, on the one hand, you're paying the government money, but then they're giving back some of it. And it's just like, it causes a lot of inefficiencies and they have to audit it. The CRA has to audit kind of child benefits because if there's a separation, a breakdown in the marriage and all of a sudden you're separated or divorced, whole mess to prove custody with parent gets the kind of child benefit and then people who are going through a divorce or separation they have to now go through cra audits to see and it's just like it could take years to sort out it's very inefficient um so there's a lot of problems with it but i understand why they feel they have to do it but maybe if taxes weren't so high people wouldn't need the kind of child benefit in the first place right why not just lower the tax rate and keep things simple um but anyways, and the other point I want to mention just about RSP before I forget, here's a general rule of thumb. So there's something called the home buyer's plan. If you're a first time home buyer and you're buying a house to live in, principal residence, you can take out money from your RSP, $35,000, and each house can take out 35000 from each of their RSPs um, under this home buyer's plan, basically tax-free or tax-deferred. Um, if you are a first-time home buyer to buy that house. So some people will ask me, like, should I be contributing to my RSP? And then I'll ask them, well, what do you have in there right now? And they'll say, I already have 50000 And I say, hmm, what are your plans for the future? Are you planning to buy a house anytime soon? You're a first-time home buyer? They say, yeah, in the next two years, I'm going to buy a house to live in. And I say, well, if that's the case, it might not be worth it to put more money in the RSP right now because when you take out, you'll have to pay tax, Right. So, and if you already have more than 35,000 in your RSP, if you want to take out more of it to buy your house, you're going to have to pay tax on it, right? right? So that's that's something to think about, right? Um, so again, whether to make an RSP contribution or not, that's another factor, right? Like how much is already in there? What are your plans? If you are a first-time home buyer, that's something to consider. Um, that's interesting. So you're saying you have yeah. 35,000 per spouse and you've already got 35 in there and you want to put it into all that into your down payment, then yeah, if you're going to put any more than that, then that should be actually like long-term investments, not also for the house, because you've already reached that 35K limit. And anything you take out above and beyond that, you're now going to get taxed on. So it's going to right. go on top of your existing tax rate. So now you're going to basically getting, yeah, that makes sense. Right. Now, okay. in theory, it could still make sense to do it because when you put the money in, you'll get the deduction and you'll get the tax refund now, right? And then a year later, you want to buy a house and you'll have to take it out, but then you're going to pay tax and you might not. It's just psychologically, even though financially it could still make sense to do it, psychologically just be prepared. You're going to, they're going to withhold tax when you make that RSP withdrawal, right? Um, so that's just something, um, something to keep in mind. And just one other point I would mention, when you're talking about kind of child benefits that they calculate based on your family income, what always bothered me about our tax system is that your tax bill is based on your individual income. Why don't we have family taxation? Other countries, your family files a joint. If you're married or common law, you file a joint tax return. In Canada, we don't really have that. Each spouse has to file their own tax return, but certain deductions and credits can be shared and split. So like all your donations, this is a good tax tip. All your donations can go on one spouse's tax return, regardless of the name on a donation receipt. Same thing with medical. All your medical receipts for your whole family can go on one spouse's tax return. Usually it makes sense to put it on the lower income spouse's tax return for medical. And donations, usually it makes sense to put on the higher income spouse's tax return. So there's little things like that. And there's other credits that can be shared as well. There's spousal RSP contributions. That's another one. It's a bit complicated. 
Um, but that's for people who were one spouses in the high bracket, one spouses in the low bracket. And then the high spouse, uh, the higher spouse person will contribute to the lower spouses RSP, the higher spouse income, the higher spouse person gets a deduction. And then three years later, the lower spouse can withdraw the money and pay a lower rate of tax on it um, into their tax return. So we have an inherently contradictory, self-contradictory tax system where we have individual taxation, but then we have like all these allowances for families to kind of split credits and splitting and uh, split certain deductions and credits. And then of course, when the government has to pay you money, kind of child benefit, it's based on your family income um, mm-hmm. because they know that's a higher amount. So they get to pay you less money. So it's, it's kind of like inherently uh, flawed there. Yeah. I think as, as an action item for listeners uh, who do have children or, or are uh, going to have children in the near future, probably worthwhile to, that could be another thing to discuss during that tax strategy meeting with your accountant. Um, because yeah, it, it is very situational and definitely, I mean, I've seen cases and then talked to people with cases where they just decided, you know what, it doesn't make sense for my husband or wife to continue to go to work. They could just be a stay at home parent. It's what they want to do anyway. Yes. We are making, you know, a bit less money on a household sort of annual income piece. But when you factor in things like the daycare, I would have to send the kids to if we were both working and the commute and all these other things. And this may be stress from the job, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they might say, okay, well, I'm okay making a little bit less if it means I basically get to stay home with the kids. Um, okay. So it can really, I mean, that I think can be a big life-changing thing for, for some families. Right. Um, and, yeah. and I've seen people say like, like, especially if one spouse doesn't actually make that much money, it may actually be worthwhile because you're spending right. most of it on, or a lot of it on daycare, for example, anyway, and on commuting yeah. costs and all that. So, so definitely yeah. a, a big, I, I think a very valuable topic to discuss with the account to crunch yeah. the numbers and say, how much less are we really getting? Right. If I quit right. my job, because uh, yeah. when we factor in the extra um, Canada child benefit payments right. that I will be receiving. Yeah, and I have a I have a, a chapter in my book that's exactly about that issue. And also, when factoring your childcare costs, keep in mind childcare is deductible. Um, mm. To complicate things <laughs> on the lower income spouse's tax return, if that lower income spouse has employment oh. income or self employment income, they can deduct childcare. And actually, in Ontario, there's now a refundable tax credit for childcare. Um, I don't know about other provinces if they have something similar, maybe, maybe not, but Ontario has this. If your family income is under 150,000, there's an even, it's even more beneficial if you have a childcare deduction. So that has to be factored in also, which further complicates the yeah. calculation. Um, and one other thing I've mentioned for kids is if you don't have an RESP, RESP is registered education savings plan. That's for to save money for your kids to go to college, university, post-secondary education. The RESP, in a certain sense, is a no-brainer because if you put in, let's say you have one child, every year if you put in $2,500, the government matches it up to $500. The government will just give you $500. You put in $2,500, they give you $500, up until I think $7,000 in total over the life of the account. Um, So it's basically $7,000 from the government. And within the RESP, it's kind of like a TFSA, the income invested, there's no tax, kind of like an RRSP, TFSA. And then we withdraw the money from the RESP. Um, any investment income that was earned gets taxed in the child's hands when they're in college, university. And usually they don't pay tax because they're in the lower income bracket. Plus they have the tuition credits. So to offset the tax. So it's almost, it's basically a no brainer. 
And it's another example of the government sometimes giving money to families that don't need it because there's no income test for that $500 matching. Like you could have income of a million dollars a year and your, your, or your kids RESP will still get that $500 matching. Um, so it, that that's, you know, it's very beneficial. It's almost, it's a no brainer. So people should, if you do a kind of, like, like you said, an action item, uh, talk of, if you haven't opened RESPs yet for, uh, your children, that's something that should be considered as well. For sure. Yeah. I'm a big fan of those. We definitely use the, we have a family RESP that, that I've set up as right. well. And yeah. yeah, it's, it's been great. I mean, the way I, I uh, tell people about it in, in terms of the, the grant money, I mean, it's substantial. It's basically 20%, right? So you put yeah. 2,500 in, you get a max right. of 500 per child per year. I, I mean, like exactly. there's limits and all that, but I mean, there's nowhere else where you can just put in $2,500 <laughs> and within a few weeks, you get yeah. a guaranteed 20% yeah. Yeah. you know, return basically on that, which you can yeah. now invest and it's now going to compound and grow as well, you know, assuming you do it yeah. properly. So, uh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, you don't get 20%, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's sort of a courtesy uh, of the Canadian taxpayer, yeah. right? <laughs> so, um, although there is on one radar. other, yeah, the other account is RDSP, the registered disability savings plan. Anyone who qualifies for the disability tax credit can open an RDSP. And in that RDSP, it's kind of like an RESP. Um, there's government matching as well. Now it depends on the level of family income, how much they match. So the lower income uh, the family is, the more matching there is. It's actually very generous. I forget off by heart what the exact amounts are, but you can look it up on the CRA website, just Google CRA, RDSP, all the information is there. And that's also very beneficial. So if you know anyone who has a disability tax credit, they're eligible for this account. It's almost like having another TFSA in a way. And the lifetime contribution, you could put up to $200,000 in there and have it invested. And once it's in there, there's no tax on the investment income and the government matches part of it. Even if you're high income, there's still some matching as well. So it's um, that's another one people should look hmm. into if they're eligible for that. And, yeah. And just to repeat what you were saying earlier, which I thought was a really great point about how don't just assume you don't, you, like no one has any disability in your household, because like you said, it's all about definitions and your definition of disability may not be actually be the government's definition. And so you may actually be eligible. Um, Cause I, I think that was a great point you brought up because when I think of disability, usually the first thing that comes to my head is like, you, know, you go to a store and you see those parking spots, right. For, oh, this is for disabled people only. So right away, it's like, oh, someone on a wheelchair, someone with these, you know, some physical ailment. And so that, you know, and by, like you said, there are so many other sort of, I guess, yeah. challenges that people have included yeah. in that definition that yeah. you might actually be eligible. And it sounds like from the numbers you're saying, it can be a real game changer in terms of you growing your net worth and all that. It's so that's fantastic. absolutely game changer. And you just reminds me of a very funny Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where Larry David is going into a restaurant or something and he sees someone parking in a handicapped spot. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to use that word anymore, whatever it's called, <laughs> those spots for people with disabilities. And the guy is walking perfectly. He says, what's with the walking? You know, this is for wheel. And he has a stutter. The guy has a stutter. And because of his stutter, he claims he has uh, from whatever, Los Angeles, whatever city they're in, he has the parking pass to park in those parking spots. And Larry is arguing with him. That's not a real disability. And, you know, they have this whole argument about it. Um, so, yeah, like I said, this tax credit, I think it's poorly named. A lot of the things qualify for it, even though you wouldn't, it's not intuitive, right? Which is basically a good, uh, 
which is basically like how our whole tax system works. Nothing really in our tax system is so intuitive. And that's why it's important to read a lot about it and try and stay up to date and, uh, and um, just like always take a second look and, and make sure you're not missing anything. Well, great, Neil. It's been uh, it's been great chatting with you. This has been uh, I I'm had a really really <laughs> good time. And, and I mean, taxes can often be perceived as a dry subject, but I you know you I don't know somehow you made it very enjoyable. So <laughs> so thanks for coming on thanks. and for sharing your your knowledge with us. And we already we talked about your book, but just in case anybody forgot, uh, they tell us again. You know, where can we get your book? Uh, can listeners contact you in any way if they have any questions, or is there somewhere they can go to check out your content? Anything at all? Uh, just let sure. us know. Yeah, so um, you can buy the book on Amazon.ca for the paperback. Ebook and audiobook are available everywhere. My website is grumpyaccountant.ca, grumpyaccountant.ca, and there's a media page there with all the other interviews I've done and all the articles I've written. Uh, quite a few of my articles have now been published in the National Post, the Financial Post comment page. So there's some interesting articles there. And you can contact me through the website as well if you'd like. Um, and, uh, if you're a real estate agent in Ontario, we have an accounting firm just for you. And that's called realtytax.ca, R-E-A-L-T-Y tax.ca for Ontario real estate agents. Um, I also have a petition on change.org to simplify the tax system. I really appreciate if people can sign that petition. The link to that is on my website. You'll see it. If you go to grumpyaccountant.ca, then there's a link to my petition and that has some good information as well. Awesome. All right. Great, Neil. Thanks so much. And yeah, I'll be happy to link out to that in uh, on buildwealthcanada.ca as well. And yeah, thanks again for coming on. And it's been, it's been great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank take you. care. Bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed this month's episode. Don't forget to check out Neil's book, The Grumpy Accountant, over on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. Also, don't forget to get your free credit score over at Build Wealth Canada dot ca slash score you should definitely be checking out your score at least every six months to make sure that there is nothing fraudulent going on there as well be sure to check out the free high interest savings account that i use which gets you an interest rate that's as much as 30 times higher compared to some of the other banks out there in canada and that is over at build wealth canada dot ca slash eq so that's build wealth canada .ca slash the letter E and the letter Q. And lastly, don't forget to check out some of the other free resources that I have on the site, including the ability to have your mortgage questions answered for free over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash Sean, so just S-E-A-N. And if you're interested in learning how to invest, be sure to check out the course over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash invest. That's all for this month. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great and safe tax season and talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.